Broadcasting live from the Aria Resorts in Las Vegas for the DBA International Conference, it's Capital Club Radio. Now here's your host, Michael Flock. Good morning and welcome to Capital Club Radio here in Las Vegas on February 10th. We're delighted and honored today to have as our guest uh, Nick Papio. Nick is the founder and chief executive officer of several companies comprising what's known as Financial Debt Recovery, or FDR, one of the top uh, collection agencies and debt buying companies in Canada. He's based in Toronto, and uh, we've known Nick for several years. And he's got an awesome track record, and we're here this morning to to learn about how he built that company and his vision for it uh, going forward. Uh, so, Nick, tell tell our listeners how you got into collections. How did you get started with FDR? I mean, was this a, a childhood dream of yours to build a collection company, or <laughs> how, how did it all get started? First off, thanks for having us on uh, online here, uh, Mike. I appreciate it. Yeah, a question with respect to. Uh, well, we started we started FDR probably in 1992 and and uh, in the Canadian market, and, and we recognized there was a voided space at that point for subprime accounts in certain silos of the market space. And uh, uh, you know, we, we started an entrepreneurship program that kind of you know went around and and um, it got into to the markets like auto and banks and and credit cards and and we developed a lot of strategies with younger folks and and. Uh, continue to move on and develop the skills. And uh, at that point, there was a need in the market and just continued to grow from there, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So you started it from scratch? Yes, FDR was started with uh, a two-man operation back in- Two-man? Two-man operation in 1993. Okay. Um, and it's since grown to uh, over 200. Were you one of the two men or you bought it from? Uh, it was myself and another partner of mine at wow. that point. So you were making the collection calls personally? Yeah, we were doing sales and collections uh, simultaneously while we, uh, you know, try to put, uh, try to keep the dream alive in this industry, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> how, how did you learn to make a collection call? I mean, did you teach yourself? Did someone train you? Or oh, my background is actually I was uh, getting my uh, University of uh, Ryerson. I was in school and I okay. got hired uh, to uh, do a part-time uh, uh, gig for an agency, and I started skip tracing. And then from there, we uh, okay. we learned at that point that. We got the steps where we continued to go from a collector to management to uh, okay. different versions of strategies in the in the industry. Okay, yeah. Did you have a mentor or someone coaching you along the way? Or I had lots of mentors. Actually, I was very fortunate to have a lot of strong people surrounding us in the, in that market space that you know um, that kept the vision alive. And some of those mentors are still on our board advisory board today. So. You know, uh, and wow, that's 20 some odd years. That's later. probably north of north of almost 30, 20, 29 years and change. So, okay, it's been a while. Okay, <laughs> so your your first customers were they, uh, I and mean, what kind of debt did you collect initially? Was it credit card debt or auto debt? Or we, we started with, with the big four uh, automobile companies, okay, um, and uh, that's where we thought that uh, th- there was a different niche in the marketplace that needed to be added touch in terms of of that market. So what we kind of did is we, we created a strategy in the automotive financial sector. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we kind of grew from, from one of the big three to all the big four, so to speak. Okay. And that carried on for quite some time. And even after inception of North of 25 years, we're still, uh, we're still working on behalf of the automotive sector in in the Canadian space. So Mm -hmm. 
So in other words, though, I guess what I'm hearing is that you also were making collection calls. I mean, that's how you started, but then you also had to learn business development skills, I guess, because you had to bring in the customers yourself, right? You didn't have a huge team initially. It, I agreed. It was, uh, you know, wearing two hats was the name of the game. You right. know? So the, uh, the morning venture would be uh, to go yeah. out and see clients and the afternoon venture would be to go out and, uh, and talk calls. to customers and keep yeah. the brand alive. And, uh, yeah. and, uh, and that's how the business grew. Yes. And that, that period. And then we kind of got some good people, good management skills in front of us. And we were happy to do that. And from there on, we had some traction going into the marketplace. So how did you finance this, Nick? Did you do it yourself? I mean, you, you were in college, I think you said. You were, you were just right out of college. So did, did you have a lot of family money? Uh, a lot of sweat equity. A trust went, fund or something? Yeah, sweat equity <laughs> went into the deal, Michael. <laughs> so there was, there was a lot of sweat equity and a lot of hard work in terms of hours and manpower that went into it, more so than... Uh, then capital. Capital was always a challenge in this space. A lot of, uh, and probably still is today in the marketplace, as you're aware. I mean, you're in that space right, yourself, right? right so right. recognize recognizable capital, conventional lending is, is very scarce in this particular marketplace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, did some of your mentors help raise capital for you or did you do it yourself or? Uh, we, we had, we, you know, what we did is we had some, some assistance in terms of some private money that uh, came through for us mm -hmm. uh, in terms of expansion. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought that was very, very helpful. And, um, and that's kind of where it went at. And so uh, help our listeners understand how you evolved from a, from you started out as a contingent, you know, collection agency. Uh, how did you, and, and why did you get into debt buying? Because that was several years later, right? That's right. And, I think what we did is we were probably one of the first private companies in Canada to start debt buying. And okay. that was in 1995 when the marketplace itself was, was really on a contingency market, which is contingency. But we, what we did is we did a, a buy with one of the largest retailers in Canada mm -hmm. and we probably did an overpricing model. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we learned from those mistakes in terms of our pricing, but we didn't have a you lot of too much. A little too much. Okay. But we were, we were glad to come home at some point in time. Right. And, um, and that's where it started in 1995 from our debt, uh, debt purchasing arm. Okay. okay. And it's grown ever since. And, uh, it's self-funded. Uh-huh. You know, there was some risk and factor, some risk factors involved with that. Right. But we're in Vegas. If you don't roll the dice, <laughs> what can I tell you? Sometimes yeah. there's no rewards, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so how was your, I mean, how did you learn how to price? I mean, cause you had never bought debt before. That was your first one in 1995. How did you price it? Great question. I think the models that we priced it on was from past experiences in terms of what we would actually collect over a period of 12 months or to 24 months. Okay. And so this was paper you were already collecting. Uh, some was and some went, okay. was not. So okay. what we did is we, we took a risk in saying, this is what we think it's going to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and then from that risk factor, we kind of built the model over the years. Mm -hmm. But the initial assessment for the first three or four years of buying was all risk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And hopefully rewards. <laughs> right. Now, by the, by 1995 then, uh, I mean, how many employees did you have then? You started out in 92 with two people, including yourself. Yeah. So 95, how, how big were you then? Oh, we were just probably less than 20 people. 20 at that time. people. Yeah. And most of them were collectors then? And we had a good, uh, we had some good pillars. We had some good people that came in and had a contribution over the period of time. So uh -huh. we were fortunate we can find some of that, those ambassadors in front of us that helped us out.
But so you were pricing then your first portfolio in 1995. Did you do it yourself or did you have an underwriter or some, an analytics person uh, help you do that or? Well, when we priced it, it was just based on historicals. Okay. Um, okay. So there was, you know, models were very thin in between in terms of where right. that was. So right. we, we priced it just based on historicals. So you were a pioneer, really? Uh, we consider ourselves that we're probably one of the first. Yeah. And, and, yep. um, and, and we thought that space was a bit more rewarding at times. And that's mm -hmm. why we continued to kind of grow the model that way as well. A bit more rewarding, meaning um, the returns you were getting. Were well, you know, in terms of when you want to establish paying people well and you want to control the market, you want to kind of manage the market at, right. at a higher yield in order to keep, yep. you know, and, and keep the, the, the ambassadors in front of you, you got to reward them well. Right. And uh, it's, it's all about doing that. And if you can do that, yep. you'll get some traction going forward. Yeah. Yeah. What were the obstacles along the way uh, as you built the company, Nick, that you encountered? Obviously, you know, it's been, what, 25 years now almost? Come a long, long way, but it was never a straight line to success. What were some of the obstacles that you encountered? Oh, you're going to have to get me back for another four hours on that one. <laughs> <laughs> there were quite a few obstacles. Well, give, give us a few stories. Our listeners love stories. So what, how did you deal with some of the adversity? Was it did you have adversity in the market? Did you have lots of competition? Did you have capital constraints? Well, there was capital constraints all the way through in terms of, yeah. you know, the, the the good labor force, number one, coming up with funding to buy the account, to buy the debt, so to speak. Uh, also dealing with compliance. Mm -hmm. um, let's face it. Over compliance? But then it was pretty. Well, regulatory was always there. I mean, regulatory. Even in the 90s? For sure, because okay. it was a new unrecognizable space for the for the compliance department. So okay. in terms of how they dealt with it was something new for them on the rollout of 95. I think we were one of the first companies to create a CRA taxation format on how to model in terms of when the purchasing came out right. and how you kind of right. do your amortization. So that was a different game altogether. So that hurdle had to be overcome as well. Right. I think that the key hurdles were probably... Uh, you know, I think the people, the capital, you know, the hiring processes, the strategies, dealing with uh, some bureaucracy in, in, in terms of a lot of credit granters, you know, had to prove yourself to who you were, what you were going to do and how you were going to establish it. So there was a lot of worthiness that had to come mm -hmm. through the uh, through the workmanship over the years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you have any sleepless nights? Plenty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, what? What what keeps you up? Was it was it losing a customer? Was it an employee issue? Was it a collection issue? What what what? I think they all tie in between a customer wanting a certain mandate from a collector wanting a certain reward. Okay. To uh, you know to to uh, to achieving the overall goal and making sure none of them go away uh, soon enough so you can keep that dream alive in terms of right you know bringing up more brands, yep. establishing those relationships. Uh huh. Because you you come across as being so self confident and positive. No one could ever imagine Nick Papio, I don't think, uh, losing sleep over anything. Well, or is there there's a different person behind the uh, the face here, Nick? What sh Share with our listeners, really, some of the, the troubled times that you may have encountered. I well, mean, some give us some the, stories here. Some of the concerns over the course were always the hurdles where you, you had a client and you had a, a bunch of good people working on that. And if mm -hmm. that client wasn't doing business with you, is how do you tell these guys there's no work tomorrow? You yeah, know, yeah. Uh, those were those were okay. strong hurdles. I mean, okay. it's always it's always a tough one when uh, you know you got to deal with the people in terms of they've been great for you and and you got to let them know that there may not be employment tomorrow, so to speak, and that works because best. your volumes ebbed and flowed and, for sure. Yeah. So those and were so key, to... those were key factors, you know. 
Do you have layoffs at any point in time? Oh, for sure. We've had we've had layoffs, oh, okay. and you know, I think for the most part, we've tried to minimize it, and that's kind of where it all st- stood from in terms of the minimization factor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we always found that success is truly driven by people, and the ability to attract and retain experience management was a big factor for us. Right. Focusing on acquisitions of portfolios, and we developed policies over those period of times. Was there sleepless nights? Right, yes, right. no question. <laughs> So how do you build a, a people-friendly culture when you have to do layoffs? Because, uh, you know, workflows can ebb and flow. Your com- market share can change over time. How do you maintain a culture in your company then that you want to maintain, which is friendly to your employees, but there are times, you know, when the volumes change. How, how do you deal with that? In terms of dealing with, you know, when the vibes change, I, th- I think it's a matter of being sensitive to others' needs as mm-hmm. well, not mm-hmm. just wearing on a CEO's hat at, mm-hmm. at all a given point in time. Right. I think the sensitivity of others and dealing with wh- how you'd feel sitting in their chair is a right. big factor in how you want to be treated. Right. You know, and, and I think if you keep that in mind, I think that goes a long way. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what we developed is we had to make those decisions. We were, we were fair and adamant about it in some cases. And uh, mm-hmm. for the most part, we we maintained our core values in terms of the overall. I think the core value and the culture of the company is okay. really what maintained the structure over a period of time. Uh huh. What? How would you summarize the core values, the culture of the company? Core values are are what we think we believe in and what we know we believe in in mm-hmm. terms of you know what we're doing, our our ambition. We our rewards was a big thing for us in terms of rewarding, remunerating trips and prizes and. And functions compensation. And, and compensation was huge for us. Uh-huh. Um, and those things played a long role. So recognition is a big deal. Huge. Yeah. Are you personally involved in that? I'd like to be. Yeah. I truly like to be and have been for quite some time. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. It's your hands on the steering wheel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, over the years, what then, I guess, how would you summarize what FDR has done right and what FDR has done wrong? What, I guess you're saying you're proud of your culture how you've taken care of employees. What other things could you do better or differently with either your employees or your customers or your investors? Because you've got some uh, other investors. I know you're the, the majority owner, but you've got other folks along the way, I think, that have contributed capital, haven't they? Uh, we, we've, had, we've had capital injection over a course of period of time. Right. And you know whether it's conventional lending or whether it's private lending, I think those things played a role. But right. So back to your question is, what was the actual? I'm sorry, I missed the. the letter. What what, what do, has FDR done right? What have has FDR FDR done wrong over the, the years in terms of dealing with your employees and your customers? Oh, the wrongs. Listen, at the end of the day, like anybody else, the wrongs are done by accountability. If there were any wrongs, yeah. you, you challenge up to it and you find yeah. out what those issues are and uh, right. you deal with it dead right. on. And I think when when they're saying what were those wrongs? Well, listen, you know it's an imperfect space at time, and we're not. Uh, yeah. And I think. What we've tried to do, as I mentioned to you on the onset, is to try to keep it a level playing field. And I yep. think, you know, if there's no problems, there's no business when you walk through the door. That's kind of really it stems down to, right? Right. You know, challenges of business as you walk through, there's always some sort of expectation on what you're going to expect today. Yeah, yeah. How do you measure uh, FDR's success with customers? Do you have, you know, key metrics? I mean, is it just how much you collect for your customers? Are there other kind of service issues that you measure for your customers? How, how, how do you define success for customers? How big the check is? Okay. <laughs> no, not yeah. necessarily. I, I think 
our customers are measured based on, you know, today's, today's uh, uh, metrics are a lot different than they were 20 years ago. Right. You know, 20 years ago, there wasn't a lot of metrics. They would look at relationships and mm-hmm. how well you did, and they measured, you know, value based on mm-hmm. how you perform. Today's, mm-hmm. it's about, you know, protecting the brand mm-hmm. and ensuring the brand and the regulatory issues and also staffing. And there is also so met- customers brands. That's yeah, what you for mean. sure. Protecting Absolutely. The customers brand, brand and, and the metrics that they impose upon you that have to be done. The scorecard. Right. right. So it's a different element today than it was 20 years ago. So the scorecard is it's not just how much you collect, but it's how you collect. Is that what you mean? It's how you conduct yourself. Yeah. Uh, looking after the brand and what the goals or achievements are for them. Uh-huh. You know, there's expectations that they expect as well. Right. And is the regulatory environment in Canada? just as uh, challenging as it now is in the U.S.? I, I would say the Canadian market is probably, you know, it's, it's not as big as the U.S. There's no question about that. We're probably 25% of it. You know, the, the regulatory requirements, it's it's not self-governing. There's been talk about self-governing in, in okay. this space, whether okay. it goes there or not right. is yet to be seen. But I, I think for the most part, recognition of companies such as ourselves that have been in there for, you know, north of 20 years has been given by a lot of the regulatory yep. regulatories. Yeah. yeah. You recently had a change in the leadership in uh, in Canada, a new prime minister. <laughs> Does that uh, have any implications for regulatory, um, you know, uh, changes as well or not? I think from a federal level, there's no, there's minimal effect. Okay. But, uh, you know, the celebrity status on our friend Trudeau is obviously, you right. know, uh, going to bring a different perspective to the uh, right. red and white flag. Right. Yep. Speaking of Trudeau, I mean, he's French. Uh, do, do collectors in Canada have to speak both languages? And for the most part, the majority of the provinces, it's, um, you know, English. But if you're in the eastern part of the country, right, uh, French is probably uh, mandatory, like in Quebec. So, right. so you've got collectors that speak French. Absolutely. And, yeah. yeah right. In the Quebec region, you have to. Right. Yeah. Right. Are there any other macroeconomic challenges in Canada today? I know the economy is, uh, you know, in a, in a difficult situation with the price of oil being low and the currency has been kind of volatile over the last few years. Do any of these macroeconomic issues have implications for your business going forward? Well, I, th- I think what you'll see is, is uh, you know, if there's an inch in the interest rates, you'll see volumes kind of go up from that standpoint and collectability kind of go lower. Right. Um, Okay. Uh, and, and if we can sustain a, a viable economy, yep. then it's probably going to be straight line. We've enjoyed some success over the last 10 years with the economy, the way it's been, based on yep. Yep. the silo, the space that we speak for, or at least I speak for. Right. So, you know, I think the economical downturn in Canada is yet to be seen. I think, I don't know if we're, I, I think it's going to be a rocky road ahead for the next two years, and, and we'll see how the volumes come out in terms of. Mm-hmm. From from that perspective, but I think mm-hmm. we all want to retain the same customer base because there's you know thirty three right. and a half or thirty three right. and a half to right. thirty four million right consumers in the Canadian market. But you 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 suggested that collectability though might be challenged going forward. Does that mean that from a debt buying standpoint, you think prices might come down because liquidity might come down? I think right now, in, in terms of the debt buying space in Canada, I think. We've probably, you know, sellers have enjoyed a good market over the last year, I think, mm-hmm. in terms of mm-hmm. it's probably been the largest space uh, in, in selling this year, or uh, right. 2015-16 has been right. over the course of the last... Yeah, prices are all-time highs. I think so. Right. I think prices have, have kind of reached its ceiling. Yep, yep. So you don't think they're going to go any higher? 
okay, I can't make that call. But the reality is I like to see it go the other way in terms right, of, of you course. know, feasibility. But of if the course. capital markets keep dictating mm -hmm. it and there's more capital on it, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. we'll hopefully reach the ceiling mm -hmm. until somebody decides that uh, there's nothing left on the table. Right. <laughs> Throughout our conversation this morning, you've used the phrase, keep the dream alive a few times. What What is your dream going forward for FDR in the year ahead? Well, I think any entrepreneur would tell you that you know, it's not, it's about trying to create a vision and a brand and, and, you know, what is the vision? It's the dream alive is you want to build a very successful company. that's going mm -hmm. to be a strong competitor. Mm -hmm. And that's what we try to do each and every day. And mm -hmm. I think that passion comes from uh, determination and hard work and uh, skill levels. Mm -hmm. So I think if you can put those three together, you might have a, a winning ingredient for anything you do mm -hmm. in any game. Mm -hmm. What, uh, let's talk about you personally for a few minutes. What, uh, what books are you reading these days? Do you have any favorites? <laughs> uh, share with our listeners, you know, how a successful entrepreneur like you spends his time. I do, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, personal stuff, you know, I do a lot of boating. I mean, I do a lot of yep. golfing. I'm trying to improve my golf game, right. as you probably are aware of, Michael. Yep. I yep. mean, we've had battles on that field a few <laughs> times, <laughs> on and off the yep. field. Yep. And from a personal standpoint, I think uh, from a book's uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I'm more into the market at reading and in, in terms of marketing research in certain spaces. I do right. a lot of reading on that. Right. And I think currently to date, um, keeping active is very important. An active mind is, is uh, you know, kind of driven from a person. Well, you work out all the time, don't you? I try to. Yeah. I, I try to. I yeah. mean, uh, you know, we try to get on that uh, on that treadmill three to four times a week. And, uh, right. you know, I think that's important. Are there lessons from the the golf course that to have implications for business at all, Nick? I'm trying. We like to try to connect the dots with our thought leaders that we interview on Capital Club Radio. And are there are there, are there lessons in sports that you sports carry are, over to business? I think they're great. I think sports analogies in terms of business, in terms of keeping the puck on the ice and going to the net and right. you know throwing the ball. I think yep. those are great analogies in terms of uh, of business and sports. I think they want they kind of co-ling with each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, when we use, you know, we got a lot of sports versions that we use in our business, so to speak. And mm -hmm. I think for sure, there's no question about that in terms of sports and business. Mm -hmm. yeah. Have you, uh, in your personal life encountered any, again, adversity that has taught you, you know, how to persevere, uh, that has helped you in building FDR and beating your competition and growing market share? In terms of beating the competition, I think we want to create a game and right. i think at the end of the day it's right. it's about the game and who gets to who gets the rewards in terms of the game and i think that's a culture that stems down from top to bottom so it's a passion mm -hmm. at the end of the day mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's a passion so going forward the, the, the passion for fdr is going to be to continue to build uh, market share both for collections and debt buying are you going to stay in the same asset classes that you're in right now in terms of auto credit card um, do you have any new opportunities that you're exploring? Well, I think it's a moving target. The mm -hmm. industry itself is a moving target, as you guys yep. probably experienced here in the U.S. in yep. terms of compliance and regulatories and new bodies that come up uh, yep. in terms of everything. So I think keeping uh, keeping alert in terms of what the new targets are going to be going for, whether it's, you know, in terms of whether it's performing, non-performing, staging after three years, four years. I think those right. all play a role right? And and how you're going to come up with your work strategy to where you're going to go to. Yeah. You know, I think capital is going to be a key factor today and mm -hmm. having market brands recognize that there is space and there's 
plenty of opportunity for future growth and employment mm-hmm. in this space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I know you've got plans to get into the U.S. market, and many of our listeners uh, certainly are from the U.S. Do you have any uh, thoughts about getting into the U.S. market you'd like to share with our audience today? Well, we find the U.S. market, it's, it's an interesting market, and we've been following it for quite some time now. And we think it has certain niche spaces that can certainly add some added value, in our opinion, based on our strategies and what we think we can add. So customer retention is always the big factor today. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And if you can keep the customer happy and, yep. and, and, and drive that sort of ambition, keep the customer happy, I think that's a key ingredient to protecting every, everybody's brand. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Is, is an interesting market and the volumes are, are, are 10 times full to where we come from. So I, I think we can add the value in certain spaces here. Because many of our listeners are middle market collection companies or middle market debt buyers. And right now, you know, there's uh, because of the historic shrinkage of the credit card space and the onslaught of the regulatory changes, uh, many, there's been a lot of consolidation. So some people listening today might be scratching their head saying, what is FDR going to do differently in the U S market to grow? You know, are you going to get in organically? Are you going to, are you looking at buying companies in the U S and how will you differentiate yourself in a market right now that is extremely challenging? Well, I think all markets are challenging, Michael. Mm-hmm. I mean, at, at the end of the day, I mean, uh, when we look at getting into the U.S. market, we, you know, there's, there's the first thing is the compliance and the regulatory yep. mandates that have to be adhered to. Yep. And after that point, it's the strategy and on the silos that you're going to go into and how, how saturated those markets are. Right. And, you know, what currently are the current brands or the current suppliers doing for those brands today? Yeah. You, you know, are, are there are they any out-of-the-box thinking there? Is mm-hmm. there anything in terms of any additional value? So when we take a look at a certain space and certain silo mm-hmm. that we can bring to the table, such as the auto market is going to be the primary area that we're going to focus into the uh, into the U.S. market. Auto, yeah, okay. We, we come in with north of 25 years' experience working from both sides in terms of the... Uh, the large four. So we, we believe that the value could be in that space. Well, yeah. And, and many of the folks listening today know that there is a, a bubble building in the, uh, in the auto deficiency market. And so I think your experience and your expertise and your track record in Canada and auto certainly could be leveraged uh, here in the U.S. in that particular segment. So uh, that's exciting. Yeah, it's great. Nick, any final words for our listeners this morning as we wrap up our conversation? <laughs> Uh, you, you know, we find that the U.S. Is, is an expanding market, and we'd certainly invite the opportunity of being on, on the other side to see if we can create some value here. So that's kind of where we're looking at. Well, I think, uh, you know, the folks listening today would appreciate uh, uh, learning more about uh, what you're going to be doing here, and we look forward to future interviews, and we wish you the best of luck in, uh, in 2016. I appreciate it, Michael. Thank okay. you very much. Thanks Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Oh. 